Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I chat to Professor David Dunstan about the dangers of sedentary behaviour and prolonged sitting. We discuss what sedentary behaviour actually is and how this just differs from general sort of inactivity and physical inactivity. We discuss the physiological changes that occur when we are sedentary and how it impacts negatively on cardiovascular and respiratory health, fat deposition, and at a population level, the percentage of people who could be considered sedentary. We discuss interventions to help reduce sedentary behavior. We discuss the appropriateness of physical activity guidelines and if these are potent enough to offset the risks associated with being sedentary. And we also discuss recent research investigating the relationship between quality of life markers, psychological health, and sedentary behavior during the COVID lockdowns. Prof Dunstan is a wealth of information and really is at the forefront of the research in this space, so I was super thrilled to be able to have a conversation with him. Professor David Dunstan is the head of the Baker Deacon Department of Lifestyle and Diabetes within the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition. He also holds the positions of Deputy Director and Laboratory Head for Physical Activity at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. His research focuses on understanding the adverse health consequences of too much sitting and the potential health benefits resulting from frequently breaking up sitting time with active countermeasures. In particular, he has developed effective strategies to reduce and break up sitting time in adults with or at risk of developing chronic diseases and to support office workers to reduce sedentary behaviour in workplace settings. He is also interested in how best to implement efficacious sit less and move more interventions at scale within healthcare settings for those living with or at risk of chronic disease. Professor Dunstan has a number of research grants that he has won over the years and is involved in many international studies alongside UK, USA, Sweden and Finland uh, where they have been awarded millions of dollars to study this area. Professor Dunstan also was a Clarivet, highly cited researcher in, in 2018, 2019, 2020 and 2021 and he's in the top 1% most cited for his subject field and year of publication with uh, published research of over 340 peer-reviewed papers in five book chapters and we have included a link to Professor Dunstan's ResearchGate page for you to get a place to go to have a look more in depth in his research. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation that I have with Prof Dunstan and I've also included his staff profile at the Baker Institute uh, as um, he is able to translate that science into languages we understand so brilliantly. Before we crack on into the interview, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. 
that increases the visibility of the podcast out there and it makes literally thousands of other podcasts so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show like Professor Dunstan. So uh, please enjoy this conversation. David Dunstan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. And funny that you recognise my name as as someone that you that you examined my PhD, which was um, which was fun to go back down that memory lane. That's for sure. Uh, but um, I really appreciate your expertise. Because I've spent a lot of time talking about physical activity and exercise and health with a number of of experts, but. On the flip side, haven't really had much time discussing sedentary behaviour, which is similar to inactivity, but as I understand, quite different. So I'm really looking forward to um, to the discussion this morning. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, so can we begin, David, by just getting a brief sort of background from you as to how you got into the field and um, looking at, well, first sort of, I guess, the broad area, but more specifically that sedentary behaviour? Yeah, I've been involved since my PhD in looking at the benefits of physical activity for the treatment and prevention of um, type 2 diabetes. And um, I think that Many of us are well aware that um, for, for those types of population groups, um, getting people to do regular exercise is um, you know, a, a big challenge, um, particularly when there's many barriers to, to doing regular exercise. And the origins of me working in the sedentary behaviour were really uh, inspired by um, people that I work closely with still now in um, Professor Neville Owen, um, who's at Swinburne University, and, and Professor Joe Salmon, who is uh, with me at uh, Deakin University. And back in 2000, I was uh, running a national diabetes prevention, oh, sorry, diabetes prevalence study. And there was an opportunity to explore different health risk behaviours um, that were emerging as potential risk factors for you know many um, diseases and and fortuitously um, at, in that study the Ozdiab study we included just a simple question about television viewing time. Now we've since know that television viewing is just one of the many sedentary behaviours that people can undertake on a daily um, basis. And in fact, even since doing that study, the landscape has changed dramatically um, in terms of TV and then now there's live streaming, et cetera. Um, but it really has you know, uh, formed the foundation to, to look at this in epidemiological studies about the relationships that are independent of whether or not a person does physical activity, you know, or regular exercise. And it's since 2000, there's been an explosion or a rapid accumulation of evidence in the scientific literature that's really just highlighted that sedentary behaviour is a, uh, a risk factor in its own right um, that and, and, and a health risk behaviour that we need to address in addition to getting people regularly moving and, and, and engaged in physical activity. So it, it then led, um, once we knew that there was associations with um, poor health, it then led to experimental studies where we put that into, you know, um, a laboratory situation and really showed that imposing a long periods of sedentary behaviour is uh, detrimental to, um, for instance, blood glucose control. Um, and then 
the next big step, obviously, is to start to look at behaviour change interventions. So these are the interventions that are focusing on reducing sedentary time. And we've done a lot of that work, and I'm sure we'll get to discuss that. Awesome. And so I think people underappreciate the what you've said about that independent nature of sedentary behavior as a as a risk factor. You know, I do a lot of work with uh, people who are who are physically active, who might be athletes and they might get up, go for a run, but then go to their office job and sit down for eight or nine hours a day, come home. But because in their head they've done, you know, 10,000 steps on their run, that actually they're they've done what they need to in terms of activity. Now, what would be your sort of opinion with that? Yeah, well, increasingly the focus is um, on the the full waking hours that people are, are exposed to. And so what you just described, that for instance, if a person is meeting the recommendations um, of 30 minutes, let's say, of um, moderate activity, um, that still leaves for a typical person that sleeps eight hours a day, that still leaves about 15 and a half hours of other activities. And for many people, um, they, they wouldn't be familiar with this, this risk behaviour or sedentary behaviour or, you know, sitting sitting or sedentary time because that can um, occupy, for, for the Australian, average Australian adult occupies around about nine hours per day. And so oh, wow. if you're thinking about proportion of time spent in the day, um, it, it in fact, sitting um, for many people occupy, occupies more time than sleeping in a 24-hour cycle. And so for many people, um, it, it, it's just that's what's done sort of thing. It's, uh, it's the norm. But um, we're now starting to understand that you can be active, that is meet the recommendations, but you can also sit for long periods of the day. And um, you, the, the amount of sitting that you do throughout the day or excessive sitting can essentially undo some of the benefits that can be um, generated from doing regular physical activity. And alternatively, that um, the risks associated with excessive sitting um, are most pronounced in those that don't do a lot of physical activity. So there's that real interrelationship and that's why we now see guidelines that are physical activity and sedentary behaviour guidelines to really focus on both of these. Yeah. And David, what is your opinion on, I wonder if you can share your honest opinion actually on the physical activity guidelines. Like so I'll, I'll just say, you know, I look at them and, and think 30 minutes a day of activity just doesn't seem to be enough for people to shoot for um, in light of a lot of the health problems that we see out there at a population basis. Yet I understand the risks of telling people that they need to do more and making it almost unattainable. Like I guess it's hard to find that balance of, um, of um, you know, the, the thing that should be recommended. But maybe we have and I'm just, I don't know, like I've just got a, a, a bad opinion on that. No, I, I, I think that, I mean, many people do think along those lines, um, and, but I, I think what, what we're talking about here is population health, and I, I think that, that there's been so much evidence, uh, and even just recently with the device-based um, data, so much evidence showing that, you know, the greatest public health gains that we get are taking people who are doing nothing to doing something, and, and, and the and, and that appears to be the greatest benefit of pushing people more towards that 30 minutes. Yes, that's, that's, that's good. And, of course, you're going to get better, even better health outcomes if you do more. 
Um, so I think it's it's really thinking about shifting that whole um, risk uh, curve so that um, we can get the greatest benefits. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's such a great point. And what is the data on sedentary behaviour? Like what percentage of, um, and I know you'll obviously be familiar with Australian, um, but maybe some global statistics as well, I'm not sure, but what is what is the percentage of people who would uh, who you'd consider to be sedentary or the, the um, definition would sort of determine a sedentary and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And there's um, not a lot of countries that are reporting on the prevalence of sedentary behaviour because the issue there is that we still have not got definitive cut points of what defines high sedentary behaviour. Um, but what I can say is that increasingly with studies using the devices like the, um, you know, uh, the research uh, accelerometers, et cetera, um, it, it's really quite consistent seeing that um, across different countries, the average time spent sitting. Now, this is much truer of what a person does than what they would self-report is, you know, you know, between that nine to 11 hours um, per day, um, which is, yeah. A huge volume of time, and so there's many people that are exposed to uh, this excessive uh, time spent uh, sitting. Um, particularly those working in office environments, etc., and those working in transportation, where you know sitting is a requirement of the job. One one key piece of evidence that um, has been published uh, from the US in the NHANES study is. They looked at, uh, this is based on self-reported data, they looked at people in the US population who are inactive, that is not meeting the guidelines, but also sitting from eight hours or more um, per day. And the evidence in the US is that one in 10 people are in that category where they're not only not doing the right thing about physical activity, but they're also sitting for high amounts. So that's quite a substantial, and it's likely to be an underreported uh, measure as well. So that probably gives you a flavour that it's quite prevalent. Now, the other thing that we really have seen um, in the last three years is that uh, the, 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 co- the impact of COVID on physical activity and sedentary behaviour. And um, there's consistent evidence showing that, you know, at least during lockdowns, et cetera, that sedentary behaviour did increase, unfortunately. Um, and uh, we have seen this residual effect um, post-COVID as well as that sedentary behaviour um, has gone up in that time. Now, I think what what has happened is that shifts in working arrangements, for instance, working from home, et cetera, has really taken out a lot of that commuting um, that people would typically do and and typically, uh, you know, could get um, movement, daily movement. Um, And there's, you know, some evidence showing that there's a tendency to longer working hours while working at home. Longer working hours is often, um, you know, in a seated position. So it's really, we've seen a lot of shifting and changing um, over the years, but clearly um, that sedentary behaviour has gone up over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, and I also think about the environment, like not just the commute that people are missing out on, but often most people's houses are smaller than, you know, the offices that they're working on or the campuses that they might be sort of, you know, working um, working on, which you just you just get so much more incidental activity than the small amount, you know, going from your office to your kitchen to upstairs and, and back down. You have to be quite deliberate about getting steps in. 
That's right. And, um, you know, back in 99, within the Australian Physical Activity Guidelines, they had one broad recommendation of think of movement as an opportunity, not an inconvenience. And so that that was really um, the sort of foundation for focusing on that incidental type of activity and getting more daily movement. And when we come back to guidelines, I think one of the major shifts that we've seen um, in the last three or four years is we used to have this stipulation that to um, to accumulate um, a number um, amount of physical activity to meet the guideline, you had to do it at least in ten minute bounce. So you'd oh, have to go for at least ten minutes. But the real shift now is that every single minute counts. So you can. This is really important for a public health message: is that you can accumulate this across the day. You don't have to um, get uh, your your exercise gear on and and do at least 10 minutes at a time. You can accumulate it. So that's where that active commuting could come in, you know, to this because if your nine-minute walk to the bus stop um, in the past wouldn't have counted towards your um, uh, physical activity. So I I think that that's a real um, positive change in those guidelines. Yeah, completely. And even and if I think about how people view physical activity, I know a number of people I speak to are like, well, I don't have 45 minutes to get to the gym or to go for my walk. So to, in their mind, if they don't have that set amount of time, then it's just not worth it. So you're right, that, that message that it all accumulates across a day, making that snacktivity um, as part of that sort of everyday, um, uh, just what you do is, is really going to help with regards to being less um, inactive and, and have less of sedentary behaviour. And, then, and and I think the other thing that um, there's been a real shift in some of the the language used um, in guidelines, um, with a deliberate shift away from a, a, a sole focus on exercise, um, and and that's really essentially been replaced with physical activity, which of course is any form of you know um, body movement, of which exercise is one component of that physical activity so outside just getting your structured exercise like you know doing a 30 minute um uh, workout etc there is opportunity to achieve your physical activity guideline outside that structured exercise by just simply moving more and um you know for instance in active commuting so I think that that's a real positive message. And, and for many people, the term exercise can conjure up some unpleasant previous experiences that I think that that's what has impacted some of those chronic disease populations, for instance, those with type 2 diabetes who have real issues like foot issues, et cetera, where exercise is a, a bit of a, a non-option for, for them, but getting out and doing a little bit, you know, accumulating light walking is likely to be highly beneficial for that group. Yeah, sure. So, David, um, moving into some of the health issues associated with sedentary behaviour, could you elaborate on some of the mechanisms as to how sedentary behaviour sort of leads to problems. You mentioned um, blood glucose, but um, insulin resistance, vascular dysfunction. Like, So what are some of those physiological um, sort of outcomes? Well, first of all, I, th- I should highlight that you know, comprehensive reviews of the evidence have clearly shown that excessive sedentary behaviour is linked to, firstly, 
premature um, death. Um, it's also linked to increased risk of um, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and some cancers as well. So I think that that's pretty well known now that there is a strong evidence base that there is that link. But what there has been in recent times is a lot of studies to attempt to unpick that. And this is what you're talking about in your mechanisms. Okay, well, what if, if people are sitting for long periods of time, what is it actually doing to the human body? Um, we, we recently published a probably the most comprehensive review on what are the likely biological impacts on um, of prolonged sedentary behaviour or increasing amounts of sedentary behaviour. And I think if you, you you can simply break it down by effects on different systems and Firstly, the one that you alluded to where probably the most consistent evidence is that we do know that when um, people sit for long periods, particularly in you know really large chunks of sitting time, like we call that prolonged sitting, it is quite detrimental to the control of blood glucose to a meal. Um, especially so uh, and in particular for those groups that uh, already have disturbed glucose metabolism metabolism like people with type 2 diabetes it's you know um, where we see it most magnified in in those groups so glucose is one now the other um, um, key um, sort of mechanism is the impact on um, blood flow um, so what we do do show is I'll see is that when people are seated, there is uh, reduced um, blood flow um, that occurs, particularly in the lower limbs, because when we sit, essentially our muscles switch off. <laughs> um, and so our chair is doing the work that would be undertaken by the body um, uh, when we're standing, for instance, to minimise the effects of gravity. So what we do have, um, see is a lot of studies showing that, uh, that, that reduced blood flow can impact um, uh, subsequently impact blood pressure and um, so it can have adverse uh, consequences for blood pressure with you know um, rises uh, across the day um, with long periods of uh, sitting of course the reverse is true if you break up your sitting time um, more frequently then there's also um, relationships that uh, have been shown with inflammation the longer people um, sit, the, the, the greater tendency for inflammation to, to develop. And inflammation, I mean, it's a complex uh, consideration, but um, we want to uh, try and minimise the amount of inflammation that is developing throughout the day, particularly in response to meals, et cetera. Um, and then we also have, have uh, started to see studies showing the impact on um, blood flow to the brain, for instance. So what, what we do see is that, and when you know people are sitting for long periods of time, that there, there, there can be um, adverse consequences to uh, to the blood flow to the brain, which which is really important because we we need that those nutrients um, to get to the brain and for our ability to concentrate and and um, you know, perform the daily tasks. So I think if we break it down into the, the, those four key sort of mechanisms of glucose control. Um, uh, the, the blood pressure and blood flow uh, impacts inflammation, and also um, on you know potentially the um, uh, blood flow to the brain, etc. They're, they're the key mechanisms so far that have been revealed that potentially explain that those relationships with those health outcomes that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, because like everything that you've mentioned are that 
sort those risk factors that then lead to um, issues with blood sugar regulation and type 2 diabetes and um, cardiovascular events and, and all that kind of thing. So that, you know, that makes perfect sense. Interest, like in that paper, um, David, which you sent me that that I'd seen that um, the the review that you mentioned, and we'll pop a link to that in the show notes for people who are interested to have a look. Um, it was mentioned about the effects of sedentary behaviour on the intermediary metabolism. Um, are you able just to describe what that actually means? Yeah, it's it's all those um you know um. Uh, uh, well, where the body is um, regulating homeostasis, for instance. So, you know, the control of glucose for one um, and then the control of blood fats. Um, so this is in response to daily meals throughout the day, um, how well our body is responding to that control. And that, that also can include, you know, the, the control of um, insulin, in terms of um, regulating blood glucose um, throughout the day. Um, and also, as I mentioned, those inflammatory markers. Um, so it's all those markers that are um, impacting on the control of those essential um, you know, physiological mechanisms like blood glucose control, which we need to have such fine control or things start to go awry. And David, what um, studies are out there that show that a break in that sedentary behaviour can impact favourably on some of these markers? Yeah, so what I've just described and all the effects of what occurs with increasing sedentary behaviour, there is accumulating evidence from studies that have looked at this experimentally. So you know, some studies use bed rest, which is probably the most extreme form of sedentary behaviour and probably not... Um, uh, simulating what typically occurs in in um, in society, but um, other studies have looked at when when uh, limbs are immobilised for you know orthopaedic injuries, etc. Um, but more recently, there's been dedicated studies that impose sedentary behaviour versus breaking up of that sedentary behaviour. So when I talk about breaking up. Some studies have used every 30 minutes, just getting up and moving around. Some have used every hour or so, getting up and moving around. And and not surprisingly, many of the effects that I described on for sedentary behaviour, the reverse is true when we actively break up sitting times throughout the day. That is um, reductions in blood glucose um, throughout the day. And that's really important in response to meals, reductions in insulin, reduction in um, blood lipids, um, increased blood flow um, and reductions in blood pressure. So it's almost the flip of what occurs when we you know, see what, what we see with um, um, uh, increasing amounts of sedentary behaviour throughout the day. And so I think it, it really highlights that it's not only about how much time you spend in total throughout the day, but it's how you accumulate your sedentary behaviour throughout the day with a breaking up pattern more favourable than a prolonged pattern. Yeah. So in your view, if there was a practical recommendation around breaking up sitting time, is it every half an hour for a couple of minutes? Is it every 90 minutes? Is there a, a, a recommendation around it? Yeah, so we've based it on the studies undertaken so far. A minimum would be to break up uh, every hour. But ideally, I think um, what we are really encouraging is to every half an hour, just take a, sh a short break from the computer screen. And so 
one of the golden rules that I often talk about um, uh, when talking to media, et cetera, is to maybe use the, the clock as your guide. So at the 12 and the 6 mark of the clock, um, take take an opportunity to just simply get up and break up that sitting time, essentially turning on the body's engine again, which has become idle for at least half an hour or, or an hour or so. Yeah, nice. That's that's awesome. One of the other things which I read was that sedentary behavior leads to um, an increase in sort of visceral fat deposition. And is that through the mechanisms that you described earlier with regards to the changes in insulin and, and blood glucose and, and things like that? Yeah, it's a very very complex area to understand what what are the you know what's truly affecting um, uh, the visceral fat, etc. But there, there there has been some studies that have shown associations of high amounts of sedentary behaviour and, and visceral fat, for instance. Um, but it, it, it's there's a lack of consistency in the evidence that truly pins sedentary behaviour as a as a as a true independent risk factor on 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 body weight um, per se. Um, and I think uh, uh, we need more studies that look at this over long, longer periods of time to be able to get more definitive of is this cause or is it associated with other factors, which is highly likely given that, that um, there's a lot of influences on body weight that, that occur. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because if I think about sedentary behaviour, like people either at the desk or watching television, like they may also be having popcorn or eating snacks or, you know, doing other things, which even though they're adjusted for in statistical analyses, sometimes I wonder how much of that stuff you can actually adjust away. I don't know. Yeah, 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 that's so true. Um, but what we do know um, is that if we look at energy expenditure, we know that a seated posture, there is ever so much less energy expenditure to, for instance, just standing. But of course, once we move, and of course, when we move faster, that energy expenditure is substantially increased. And remember what I mentioned uh, earlier is that the average Australian adult sits from you know nine hours per day. So that's nine hours spent in a very low energy expenditure throughout the day. So it's likely to be a, a contributor, but very difficult in epidemiological studies, as you say, to factor out yeah. those other influences. Yeah, sure. And has your research changed your own behaviour, David, and that in your labs and stuff? Oh, definitely. Um, and what we see is that, well, for me personally, um, I spend a lot of time up on my feet uh, throughout the day. So I, I really avoid those sitting periods of 30 minutes or more. Um, in fact, I use sitting as a break from being upright um, uh, throughout the day, whereas a lot of people use it the other way around. Um, what we also see is um, that in many of our um, meetings that occur within um, our, our laboratory at least, is that our meetings are uh, <laughs> Active type meetings. So, some meetings will include will include um, you know a, a walking meeting that can can occur outside um, when we we don't have to take notes, etc. But even in those longer meetings, we actually highly encourage people to stand up and move around. Where it's you know in 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 our society, it's 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 a, essentially a um, a social norm 
that you sit, that's when you're concentrating. But in fact, you're actually a lot more likely to concentrate better when you you are interspersing some uh, upright time with you know when you're sitting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I have a, um, a, a standing desk, and there are certain tasks I do easily standing. Uh, however, I am the person who, if I need to think, I actually have to sit down to do it. I can't stand and think. I can do tasks. But then I also try to look at me showing off, not really showing off, like almost like um, making sure that you don't think I'm too sedentary. Um, I try and take laps around my house, actually, uh, yeah. uh, every every so often to sort of break up that that sitting time. So I appreciate what people think. <laughs> Yeah, and I think what, it's really important to highlight that um, they're not standing desks. We call them height adjustable desks. So it allows a person, like what you just described, to work in different postures. You can work in a seated posture or a standing posture. And, of course, we don't want to um, be conveying this message that you should just stand all day because that potentially could introduce other health um, problems. Yes. So I think... It's important to have a balance between the sitting and standing throughout the day if you are using one of those height adjustable um, workstations. Yeah. Do you remember those? I'm trying to think of what those balls were now. Like it, they're they're everywhere. Those um, uh, I'm going to say balls. yoga. Yeah, yeah. And people, there was there was all the rage that everyone would have one of them to sit on as opposed to a chair. But then I think there was some health and safety issues, so that didn't last very long. But is that actually like a better option from a an energy um, sort of standpoint, David? Well, potentially from an energy perspective, but I also have many of my physio physiotherapy colleagues that uh, um, really caution uh, the, the use of such um, uh, fit balls, particularly for people who already don't have great core strength. Um, oh, yes. And so it, what it can do is actually introduce musculoskeletal issues you've done for long periods of time. So I'm, I'm one, it's one that I don't really highlight as a potential solution to just getting up and moving around. Well, I think the more preferred option is to just getting up and moving around frequently is more likely to be, you know, more uh, safer without the, the yes. risks associated with sitting on those balls. <laughs> yeah, actually, yes, that, um, that makes perfect sense now um, as to why it's not the ideal scenario and and you mentioned sort of accumulating activity across a day and obviously I'm thinking about steps but and I don't know whether this is your area or not David but what about like I have a strength training session to do I don't have 45 minutes at the start of the day but like is it still worthwhile doing that kind of thing in a snacktivity type way across you are you still going to get the same sort of benefits do we know that well, I think the benefits that you're going to get is um, the benefit of doing something rather than nothing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you obviously it's it's a it's a, um, a a more positive um, approach to um, uh, health. Um, I don't know whether we have the evidence for, for for instance for strength training that say if you do half of your session in the morning and then half of the session in the afternoon. What what are the impacts there for strength um, and, and you know, musculoskeletal health? Um, but, of course, that's going to contribute to you meeting the guidelines because you're accumulating that time uh, over, over the time. So um, I think 
uh, I often, uh, no, I often quote um, probably one of the most famous um, persons in physical activity research, Steve Blair, um, when he gets asked what's the best exercise that you should undertake and he says it's the one that you will do regularly. And so I think that that's a really important point that you, you, you find what works for you and what can be undertaken on a regular basis. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, David, obviously, your your lab does a lot of these uh, type of studies in and around sedentary behaviour. What is your like, what is some of the research that you're quite excited about over the next couple of years to further our understanding on this? Yeah, um, what we are really working on now is. Um, two, two key aspects. One is firstly to identify who is more at risk because of their sitting and their um, physical inactivity. So can we get better ways in which we can screen people by simply asking about their sitting time and their physical activity? Because to ask either in isolation, you're not getting a true picture. So I think what we're working with is our healthcare professionals to streamline that risk identification approach because we know that we need to focus on both of those behaviours. But what the other aspect is from the research is a real shift in our thinking towards the promotion of regular physical activity, particularly in people who have those conditions like diabetes, et cetera, um, of what we term a staircase approach to regular physical activity participation. And when I talk about a staircase, we're often dealing with people who are doing nothing or very little um, activity. And so um, the the barriers for these people of taking them to doing you know nothing up to what would be considered to be guideline based you know exercise um, is a real big challenge. So the staircase model operates on this principle of taking transitional steps towards that. So in the first instance, if a person's sitting for a lot of time but they're not doing much activity, let's just start thinking about reducing your sitting time throughout the day. Can you get less sitting throughout the day? Okay, well, once you achieve that step, can you progress to the next step of increasing the amount of light movement that you do throughout the day? So, you know, then you're progressing the sitting less and moving more. And the idea is to provide a foundation then to encourage that more moderate intensity activity like the brisk walking, et cetera. So in in the current sort of traditional model where it's a one-size-fits-all, you need to get more exercise, the, the staircase model really operates on this principle of taking people through a transition towards then having a base to be able to engage in that 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 what what is considered to be the the more healthy type of physical activity moderate intensity type activity so i think that what we're really wanting to work on um, uh, in in healthcare settings for instance is can can we first identify people at risk but then can they be referred to um, interventions that can essentially be delivered remotely? And probably what we have um, um, a new era with is the the, the, the wearables that do exist. Um, so, for instance, the Fitbits, the Apple Watch, um, the Garmin, etc. We are now have this opportunity to use that data to inform our interventions on a daily basis. We can actually get the data, you know, for for instance, in some of the devices we can get minute every minute we can get a da- uh, that data and 
we can actually provide cues and prompts to people depending on their context. So if, if you're at work, it's going to be very difficult to put on your exercise gear and go out for a walk, but you may be able to get a walk around the corridor. So when when um, smartphones, et cetera, know where a person is located, they can tailor that message to, to the actual context. So um, well, that, that's probably what really excites me the most is that we are now into, into this new era of being able to deliver behaviour interventions that focus on both sedentary reduction and increased physical activity um, um, and, and remotely delivered, which has the potential to increase that, that um, maintenance and long-term maintenance of regular physical activity. Yeah. And I think about that, David, like so many people feel a little bit disheartened if they're in that position you mention um, of being both sedent- very sedentary and being physically inactive, that they're un- like they're so far from where people are telling them they need to be that it's almost insurmountable. Whereas that so and or they go from zero to hero and injure themselves in the process. So that sort of stepwise progression to um, ultimately what is optimal for, you know, um, minimising risk um, sounds much more sensible and achievable. And everyone and everyone loves to sort of, well, maybe not everyone, but to reach a goal and feel good about that. Like there's nothing better than feeling amazing from doing something like that. Well, I think you've said it better than I um, said it, um, and, and, and that you've hit on a lot of those considerations. And I, and I think what our job now is to generate the evidence base to show that those types of approaches, staircase-type approaches, are actually beneficial for health. And so they're the longer-term studies where you can go for, for 12 months or, or, or more to be able to demonstrate that, yeah, you can accumulate activity across the day and you can transition through the steps. Um, progressively to get to the benefit of regular moderate intensity activity. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. Um, and is there funding in Australia for those types of studies, David? Uh, I don't know. You probably have asked me at the um, not a, not a great time because our funding climate is uh, you know um, you know substantially well highly competitive is probably what I should you should say. Um, but I think what what I refer to of the staircase approach is looking at this from a different angle. And so I think we really have to start thinking about, well, our approach to the promotion of um, physical activity, because here in, in Australia, at least, we have just seen a flatline or plateauing of the participation levels in physical activity. So we really um, despite all our public health efforts and, you know, our wonderful climate, etc. Um, our environment is highly conducive to physical inactivity for a large segment of the population. So we have to think about other ways in which we can approach this to bring that line up a little bit from a flat line of, um, you know, just under half the population um, and not getting the benefits of regular physical activity. So I think it's thinking about uh, the, the the holistic approach to um, physical activity and reducing sedentary behaviour across the day uh, for for people. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that uh, active or sedentary behaviour was more pronounced post COVID. Has physical is that has COVID in part changed that physical activity behaviour as well? Yeah, and and largely um, 
at the incidental type activity, um, you know, so that we, we, we've just touched on before about if, if people, well, I think from a behavioural perspective, when people are sedentary, it displaces physical activity. So you, um, just by simple definition, a sedentary behaviour is, you know, um, the low energy expenditure activities in the day that don't require any real movement. Okay, so any, if you transition from sedentary behaviour to any movement, you are um, you know, sort of re replacing with physical activity. So behaviourally, I think we have to start getting people thinking that any time that we are spending sedentary, we're losing that opportunity to be physically active. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're right. Everything's like a trade-off, right? And opportunity costs when it comes to what you decide to do. Um, David, you were also, I, I, and I don't know the extent to which you were involved in the study, but you were an author on a study around psychological health and COVID and sedentary behaviour, which is, you know, we've been talking a lot about the physical health outcomes of being sedentary, but what do we know about um, sedentary behaviour and, and psychological health as a sort of a kickoff into this conversation? Less, less is probably what I should say. Less than we know for physical health. Um, but um, what we are starting to see is some, you know, really interesting studies that sh are showing that there are detrimental impacts of sedentary behaviour on mental health and, you know, relationships with depression, anxiety, um, etc. But what the, the work that you are referring to, what um, that has started to uncover is that not all sedentary behaviours um, have the same effect on mental health. And when, what I mean by that is that there are some sedentary behaviours, and I'll use television viewing as, a, as, as an example, where it's what we would call as a passive sedentary behaviour. You're not really having to do much thinking uh, at all. Whereas as opposed to uh, using a computer to work, you're sedentary, but you have to use your brain. <laughs> and so we call them mentally active um, sedentary behaviours. And what's really interesting is that once you start separating those sort of passive sedentary behaviours versus the mentally active sedentary behaviours, it's quite clear that the passive sedentary behaviours have a more detrimental impact on mental health outcomes like depression, cognitive functioning, um, et cetera. So it, it's really early days in, in this area of research, but I think it's just the evolution of the whole um, uh, research in that, we, yeah, we found that there are relationships with physical health with sedentary behaviour. Now we're starting to see it with uh, mental health, but now under the surface of that, there are different types of sedentary behaviours that are more detrimentally associated with um, said, um, with mental health outcomes. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more as research groups start to look at the different types of sedentary behaviours and the impacts. Yeah, it's interesting. And of course, uh, people who are interested in this field will be well familiar with the beneficial effects of physical activity on mental health. So I guess this is just, this is potentially just another um another uh, string in that sort of um, bow of of research and understanding, which was a terrible analogy, actually. I'm not sure quite why, why I use that. Um, but there you go. Uh, so in light of this research, David, what is the sort of next steps with regards to understanding this relationship more? Uh, well, we're now starting to uh, look at various groups that have collected this type of data in their 
um, epidemiological studies because I think it's important to look at this not cross-sectionally, so one point in time, but to look at this prospectively. So changes over long periods of time. So uh, research groups are starting to look at this in prospective studies, which is going to get us a little bit closer to understanding the sort of uh, pathway and the relationships. But importantly, we are seeing some groups and including our own that are, are wanting to start to are taking this back to the laboratory again and so when, when you expose people to mentally active sedentary behaviors versus passive sedentary behaviors do you get different impacts on for instance cognitive functioning do you get different impacts on you know blood flow uh, cerebral blood flow blood flow to the brain Etc. So, looking at some of those mechanistic aspects, and I think that that's exciting. It's going to start to um, uh, uh, provide a more solid evidence base that we need to channel our attention to those passive sedentary behaviours for, for for improved mental health. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and David, like, just lastly, like, I um, I wonder about your opinion or how you feel about like children today versus, you know, what it was like when I was growing up with regards to the exposure to uh, much more opportunity to just be passive, to just that sedentary behaviour. Like, is that, like, are you, do you often sort of sit back and go, God, you know, we're in for it in the next 20, 30, 40 years with regards to health outcomes? Or are you have you got a bit more of a positive uh, view on it? I get in trouble a little bit at home about this because <laughs> I've got, um, you know, teenage uh, children and, um, and whenever I say, all oh, back in my day type of uh, thing, but I, I think what's clear is that there has been this huge revolution of um, uh, the, the instant access to passive sedentary behaviours that, 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 for instance, the mobile phone provides, the uh, um, screens um, provide. And I, even if I think about 20 years ago when we were doing our OzDiab study that I referred to at the start, television probably was the predominant source of screen time. Now we have multiple forms of screen time and what you know, really does worry me um, uh, substantially is that you've got now streaming services, for instance, where um, people can essentially binge uh, for long periods on on those. Yeah, and in the past, when we had television, we used to have our commercial breaks that provided a prompt to get up and move around. Now we yeah. um, don't have that opportunity. So we have seen a real, real dramatic change in our landscape and it does leave me a little bit pessimistic um, for, for the future, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I feel much the same about that. I I also remember seeing data, and I can't remember, I don't know whether, whether this is still true or if it's been updated, but the metabolic equivalent factors of, you know, the energy cost of different activities. And I'm sure I remember seeing that watching TV had a lower metabolic cost than sleeping, for example. Did I, did I imagine that? Not substantially lower, but it's getting closer to that, you know, that sleeping sort of um, energy cost. And so, again, it comes back to the volume that people, yeah. um, you know, have throughout the day. So nine hours, some of which might be watching two hours, two hours of TV per day, is at low energy cost. And so I think that we, we have created, well, there's an environment that we are exposed to that is highly conducive to low energy expenditure. 
Yeah. And what uh, importance is placed on physical activity and uh, or physical education in the school system in Australia, David? Do you know? Uh, um, it, it, it could be better, but I think that we're starting to see some positive um, signs. And I know, uh, for instance, my colleagues um, at Deakin have embarked on uh, research to really shift the, the teaching practices and also the uh, learning environment to be more active learning. And through the Transform Us um, program, uh, it, it's about shifting what has probably existed for hundreds, a hundred years, where you, you must have kids sitting to learn in classrooms, and really shifting that that culture towards well. Yes, can they um, be more active in that learning um, activity? Um, and it's likely to, for the various reasons that I mentioned before, it's likely to be more beneficial for their concentration, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Well, it sounds like um, you and your lab and your colleagues are doing what you can to help from like both in that research space, but also heavily involved in that sort of um, public health space. And I know that you're often called upon to comment in that media space as well. So, you know, some of that message will be out there. Um, how else, David, can people find out more about your research and, and what your um are you wear a dual hat? I know, but where can people find out more about what you do and in, in the research and stuff? Sure, um, I direct people to our Baker Heart and Diabetes uh, Institute uh, website, where it describes um, our physical activity research, and importantly, um, we provide a lot of summaries of the media that is generated from that research, and then. The other hat, um, it, within the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University, um, uh, I head up the Baker Deakin Department of Lifestyle and Diabetes. And so there's, uh, again, summaries of uh, recent um, achievements, et cetera, uh, that can be um, obtained from there. Yeah, awesome. And then lastly, you mentioned a conference, which is not just an academic one, but a practitioner conference that's going on in Wellington this year. And I know that I'll have a lot of uh, personal trainers and, and other people who might be interested in that. Are you able to share any of those details? I'd love to, um, because I uh, wear a third hat, which is the Vice President of the Asia-Pacific Society for Physical Activity and Nutrition, where we are three years old, um, this society. Um, and and <clears throat> importantly, um, the, the society is to um, bring together all the players in the promotion of physical activity um, in society. So not just people working in academia. But importantly, those people that are on the ground and working in practice and those that are informing policy. Um, so the Asia-Pacific Society for Physical Activity and Nutrition this year's conference will be in Wellington, November 27th and 28th. Um, and importantly, um, the, the sessions are really targeted across both research, practice and policy. So I think it's it's we're hoping to fill that gap that has existed for a long period of time where we can bring together um, those that are working out there in the field with those working in research. 
Yeah, I think that's fabulous because it's one thing to do the studies and and uh, make recommendations based on that, but it's quite another thing to translate it into you know recommendations that people can actually follow. So, um, well, I'm super super excited by that, David, and I'd just like to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you again for examining my PhD and and making that possible. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I really look forward to um, seeing more stuff from your lab over the coming years. It sounds really great. Oh, thanks so much. It was uh, great to have a chat. Um, I look forward to hopefully seeing you in Wellington. Thanks, David. All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that. And if nothing else, it gave you pause to think about your own sedentary behavior during the day and what you can do to potentially increase it. It certainly makes me think more about it when I'm sort of engaged in the research and talking to experts like Professor Dunstan. And as I said, his research links are in the show notes. Next week on the podcast, I have another professor, Professor Scott Lear, who talks all about his own journey with mental health and just some of the th- interventions he explored when going through depression and anxiety and some of the lessons that he's learned. So it's a mixture of the research behind it, but also his personal story. And I really think you're going to want to tune into next week. Until then, though, catch me on Instagram, Twitter and threads at Mickey Willardin. Head to Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or pop on to my website, mickeywillardin.com, book a one-on-one call with me. You guys have a great week. See you later.